0: Please open your Bibles to the 33rd Psalm. If you don't have a Bible, the text, Psalm 33, is on the back of the bulletin insert. The notes this morning's message are in the bulletin insert as well. I invite you to turn to the 33rd Psalm. As we continue our study of the Psalms this week, we will continue through most of the summer before beginning, God willing, a study of the book of Ephesians in the fall. Last week, we looked at Psalm 32, and this week, we'll look at the 33rd Psalm. I'd like to begin by reading it in its entirety. Psalm 33, shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous, praise befits the upright, Give thanks to the Lord of the lyre. Make melody to him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host... He gathers the waters as the seas as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be and he commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people's. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart. To all generations, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven, he sees all the children of man, and from where he sits, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might, it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Let's pray. Lord, as we study this psalm, um, I just pray that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we might um, see anew your goodness and your glory, that we might behold again and and stand in awe and wonder at your majesty. Lord, uh, magnify yourself in our sight. In Jesus' name. Amen. One of the dangers of studying the Psalms is this poetic, rich language calling forth for our praise can begin to sound repetitious to us. Um, phrases, language used in the Psalms and our English translations generally is language and phrases we don't hear elsewhere, and so we can begin to become um, dull of hearing to them. The Psalms cover many themes, but probably the most common theme or the theme we think of most commonly is that of rejoicing, celebration, worshiping God. That is true of this Psalm. Last week, we looked at Psalm 32 about forgiveness, confession. And before that, we looked at Psalm 9 and 10 about dealing with enemies and and strife. And here is a Psalm admittedly calling on all of us to worship the Lord. And on the one hand, I'm sure as Christians, we know that that is right and good. On the other hand, that can begin to be boring, dull. This psalm insists that is not the case. This psalm insists that is not the case. And so we are going to study this as a call to corporate worship, as it invites us, gives us reason to worship the Lord. This is about worship. This is about what we're gathering to do here this very morning. So we're going to walk through this in four points. The first, the call to worship the Lord. You see it in the first three verses, the call to worship the Lord. Now here, Psalm 33, its placement is rather critical. You'll notice there is no Psalm title at the beginning of 33, and what that means is in the Hebrew manuscripts, There would be an unbroken flow of text from 32 to 33. The only reason Psalm 33 has been divided is because the people who put together your Bibles, people before them, saw a change in theme. It is quite possible that Psalm 33 is actually the continuation of Psalm 32. And whether or not that is the case, whoever placed it here, if it's not part of this psalm, understood its direct connection to 32. I think the distinction, the differences between the two is obvious enough. 31 is, is David um, giving history of a time in his life when he held his sin close to himself, when he did not confess, when God's hand was on him. And then he invites those listening to, to learn from his example, to confess their sin, to forsake it, to call out upon God, to experience his forgiveness. But notice where it ends. 32.10, many of the sorrows of the wicked... But steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. And it flows right into 33 1. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. So, whether or not 33 is the continuation of 32 or not, its placement here, either as part of 32 or The compiler of the psalms recognizing the commonality of themes is significant. There's a lot of of overlap. 32 ends calling on a shout for joy, 33.1, begins with that. It sings about steadfast love, 32.10, surrounding the one who trusts in the Lord. And in verse 5, the earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. And I could point out probably about 11 points of similarity between the two. But what is clear is we moved from an individual um, psalm of, of counsel to a corporate invitation to worship. And that's how it begins. And there's a six-fold repetition in the first three verses. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord of the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. In fact, six-fold repetition and parallelism shows up a number of times in this song. Hebrew poetry is marked by its use of parallelism, Parallel lines. Um, lines that are similar, either repeating or conveying new thought, developing thought poetically in parallelism. And so I just want to see three points about worship that God is concerned about. The first, you can't miss it, is to sing loudly and joyfully. Nowhere in Scripture do I see sing on key, sing well, um, sing with vibrato, But what I do see again and again and again is sing with gusto, with joy, with passion, with fervor. One of the things that should mark the people of God who understand their salvation, their forgiveness, they have in them is loud shouts of joy. Off key, so be it. But let nothing restrain your lips. From praising God. Don't think to yourself, I'm not a good... Skills going to come up later. It doesn't have to do with the vocals. It has to do with the instruments. We, we do see that in verse 3. But nowhere am I aware of a place that says, only sing loudly, only sing um, with a full voice, if you ever have a strong voice. I just continually praise God with joy. Praise God loudly. God cares about that. Those are the elements God cares about. Um, so I would encourage you, we're going to have a chance to sing at the end of this service, to sing loudly, to sing with joy. Those are the marks of authentic worship. Um, shout for joy to the Lord, are you righteous? Praise befits or is fitting the upright. It's appropriate. Give thanks to the Lord, the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp. Here now we're seeing the, the notion of instruments. They've been in the headings of Psalms 4, 5, and 6, but here they're mentioned. It's it's likely the lyre and the harp are the same instrument. It's possible they're not, but we're we're talking about the instruments of their day. And then we get this interesting phrase, sing to him a new song. And there's some discussion or debate by what is meant by this, but I'm I'm convinced, um, and, and I'll read some notes from my old Hebrew professor, Dr. Barak that it means this. When the hymnist calls Israel for a new song, and they do this regularly, I put the references there, Psalm 90 verse 1, Psalm 98 verse 1, Psalm 149 verse 1. In the book of Revelation, we go and they're singing a new song. Psalm 40, he's put a new psalm in, song in my mouth. This is not a unique thought to Psalm 33. But he writes, when the hymnist of Israel calls for a new song, they call for a new and adequate response To a new act of God, or to an act of God newly realized by his people. Um, The the concept would be of a fresh response. And that's one of the reasons why, when I started off talking about this psalm, I warned about the danger of sort of dully glossing over these things. What the psalmist is saying, what Israel is being called to, what we are being called to, is is open your eyes and really see what is being said here. We're gonna look at things you know, we're gonna look at God's creation. What the psalmist is saying is, is, allow yourself to see it so that you respond afresh anew. And if you do, you will shout forth with joy. You will shout forth loudly. Sing a new song. Don't let this just be an old, redundant pattern. But let yourself see and respond to God's works afresh and anew. Sing to him a, a fresh, new song in that sense. This doesn't necessarily mean grab the latest thing off of the Christian radio station. Rather, it's let your heart, let your eyes see anew and respond anew with praise to God. You're praising him for new mercies, graces, wondrous excellencies that you're seeing. It's not dull repetition. I think that's the idea. Or as another writer says, Psalm 33, a new song is prompted by a new realization of the work and word of God. That's Ronald Barclay. So sing loudly and joyfully, sing a new song, and then sing with skillful playing of instruments. See, there's no requisite musical talent or ability for singing loudly, joyfully in the congregation. There is some skill requirements for those leading with instruments. We have the same thing here. We require some level of competency for those who are going to serve on the platform. But the only requirement to qualify you for singing loudly is that you are redeemed you are the righteous in Christ, and that your heart overflows with joy. So that's that's the call. That's what is fitting. And the rest of the psalm is going to give reasons for why we ought to do that. So that's the goal. Understand this: dull, half-hearted praise the Lord, is is not what God is calling for. Be be bold and courageous to sing off key and to shout for joy, as the verse one says. I mean, sing as well as you can, but. Don't hold back. You're singing not for my pleasure. You're not singing for the person's next to you's pleasure. You're singing for the Lord. Shout for joy, you righteous. So the, the, we have this call to worship, to sing with freshness, with skill, with fervor. But then notice how verse four begins with four. And now we're to get from the call the cause for worship. The psalmist is, this song gives us reasons to respond this way. If you showed up this morning and your heart is not overflowing with joy, if, if you are discouraged, if your mind is elsewhere, this psalm will give you reasons. This is the goal up front, this joyful, loud singing and shouting of praise to God. But now we're going to get some reasons for it, the cause for worship. And we'll look first in verses 4 through 5 at his trustworthy character. For the word of the Lord is upright And all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. And so we see in in sort of reverse action his work and his person and his work. It begins with his word, which is going to be picked up in the next stanza as well. For the word of the Lord is upright, all his work is done in faithfulness. This is is seen to be an outflow of his character. It's upright. That word for upright is the same root for the righteous in verse one. It's fitting, in other words, for the righteous to praise God because all of God's work, all of his word, is equally righteous and right. He is upright in his word, and he is faithful in his works. You know, we we, we pause and think of God's goodness in giving us mothers and the gift of motherhood. And that's one of the evidences of his righteous and good works. Uh, The earth is full of them. That's where the next line goes to. He loves righteousness and justice and abounds in steadfast love. I love the phrase, the earth is full of his steadfast love. And one of the evidences of that steadfast love is mothers. God has showered us with mercy and blessings and we pause periodically to notice different blessings and to celebrate them and to hold them up and say, praise God for that. That's one of the things we're doing this morning. But what the psalm is saying is if you'll just stop and look, you will see the steadfast love of the Lord all around you, everywhere you look. Why? It's the overflow of who he is and what he does. Because his word... And his work is upright and faithful because he loves righteousness and justice. The overflow of his actions and his person and his being is steadfast love everywhere. Now, the word for steadfast love is, is a special Hebrew word. Um, it's the word hesed, or if you want to sound more authentic, you throw a guttural in and you get chesed. And it's a word reserved for God's covenant love to his people. You could call it his gospel love. You could call it his loyal love. My children's um, Bible story book calls it his never-ending, always, never-letting-go love. Those are are good renditions. But it's focusing not just in God's love and giving the stars, not just his love in in making the plants grow, but his love in saving his people, his salvation love. And the earth is full of that. One of the ways the earth is full of God's salvation love is that we are even here. Each and every one of us deserves his wrath, and it tarries, and it lingers, and he holds it back, and he offers pardon. And so there's an evidence of God's steadfast love everywhere you look. So one of the causes to worship the Lord is his trustworthy character. Understand who he is. He is one who all of his speaking, all of his doing is upright and faithful. He loves righteousness and justice. And the overflow of his person and being is that the earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. That, that's one of the links, again, with Psalm 32. David is, is saying at the end of Psalm 32, the reason why God forgives so quickly when he confessed his sin is because of God's steadfast love. Look at 32.10, many of the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. And here, more than even surrounding, it just envelops, the whole earth is full of God's steadfast love. Don't let that bore you. Just pause and wonder anew that you are even here, that I am even here and marvel at God's goodness and his grace. Don't don't let that bore you. You are surrounded. It goes before you. It comes after you. God's steadfast love is the reason you and I are here. Earth is full of it. So the first cause to praise God is his trustworthy character. By the way, that, that phrase steadfast love, this is how God introduces himself in Exodus to Moses. If you remember, Moses is in the cleft of the rock He wants to see God's glory, and what God says is this in Exodus 34. The angel, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's God's glory. Moses says, show me your glory. He says, I'll show you my glory. I'll tell you my name. I abound in steadfast love. Now, God says that's his glory. The psalm here is calling us to see it and respond in worship, in praise, and in joy. So, God's trustworthy character. Second reason to worship the Lord is seen in verses 6 through 9, his powerful word. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, by the breath of his mouth all their host he gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. One of the things that is is truly awesome of our God is he is a talking God. And and again, don't, don't let that pass by without creating a fresh response of worship. The only reason we know anything about him is because he has spoken to us and revealed it to us. If God did not talk, if God did not disclose himself, if he was not relational, if he was not communicative, we would be left with no knowledge of him. But not only does God talk, it's his, it's his weapon of choice, if you will. In, in Genesis 1, which is what this is surely referring to, turn to, turn to Genesis chapter 1 we find not only did God make everything out of nothing, but we we learn how he made everything. The details that were given in Scripture are important. I've said this before, but oftentimes when I'm reading my Bible, I'm trying to play Jeopardy with it. Because, of course, in the the game show Jeopardy, you're given the answer, and your task is to find the question. And, And so as you're reading the text of the Bible... Whenever information is given, my assumption is God thinks I should know this and not this other thing that I wanted to know. Why do I need to know this? So you're playing Jeopardy. Why is this important? And look at the recount of God's creation in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of the Lord was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. That's incredible. We're not only told that God made everything, we're told that in the first verse. But Moses goes on to relate not just what God did, but how he did it. And what's truly remarkable is God created everything by speaking, he didn't work a spell, he didn't invoke a ritual. He spoke, and so from the earliest revelation of God in the Bible, we learn here is a God who speaks, and not only that he speaks, but his speech is powerful. God spoke, and the nothing obeyed and became everything, and as you keep reading through Genesis chapter 1, he keeps on creating by speaking. And you keep going through scripture, and again and again, God's word is what he uses to create. How does he create his people? How does he birth us? According to James, by his own will, we are brought forth as a kind of first fruits by the word of God. If you're a Christian this morning, God made new life in you through his word, God created the universe with his word. And if we grasp that with any sense, it should create praise and joy. It's by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. <laughs> I mean, scientists wonder what, what things are made out of when we zoom in. And every time we zoom in, we, we get amazed that you know this podium is made of ultimately atoms. And then those atoms are made of things, protons and Neutrons, and electrons, and we have theories of what those are made of. But if you press down front enough, what's it all made of, at the end of the day, this podium, this platform, you and I are the speech of God made concrete. At the end of the day, according to Hebrews 1.3, what upholds all reality? The word of God. Everything around you is incarnated speech in one sense. That's its ultimate foundation of existence. <laughs> These are reasons to stand in on and worship the Lord. His powerful word in creating the world. Also, his powerful word in preserving the world. He gathers the waters. The sea is a heap. He puts the deep in storehouses. Now, it's possible this is a reference to the Red Sea parting. I tend to think more this is still looking at God's work in creation. As you read through Genesis 1, he separates the waters, and he makes an expanse and ground in between them. Um, I tend to think that's what he is getting at here with that. Listen to Psalm 148, 4-5. through five. Praise him, you highest heavens, you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. Everything around you was made by the speech of God. And everything around you is still in order and still exists because of the speech of God. And this ultimately, the power of God's word, is supposed to humble the world. It's supposed to humble the world. Look at verse 8. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Why? For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. This world is the evidence and the direct result of God's speech. His word made it out of nothing. And that is supposed to humble us we're supposed to stand in awe of that type of power? I mean, think of the infinite power of God. Think of the size of the universe and just what we know already of how far out the stars are and the galaxies and the the nebulae and everything out there that we're just beginning to see. And all of that was made by God saying, let there be, and it was. Just dwell on that for a moment something you know. I'm assuming you know. But if we let it hit us afresh, it should create awe and wonder within us. God's word creates, preserves, and it should humble us. And that humbling transitions because in nature, God speaks and everything obeys. So God says, let there be light. There's light. God says, let there be a separation between the waters. There's a Separation between the waters. He spoke, it came to be, he commanded, it stood firm, and in contrast to that, you and I disobey. That's the contrast that comes next. The universe obeys, the waters obey, the stars obey, the sun and the moon obey. You and I, we say no. No. And that still doesn't thwart God's power and purpose. Look at verse 10, his sovereign purposes. We, we are to praise him because of his character. We are to praise him because of the power of his word. We are to praise him because of his sovereign purposes. In contrast, when you get to man, man would attempt to defy him. Man would attempt to raise his fists at him. And yet, we read, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. Here's your blank. He nullifies the counsel and plans of the nation. That's the hinge here. There's the counsel and plans of the nations in contrast to the counsel and plans of God. And what do we see? He, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. This is more reason to praise the Lord he is a sovereign God. He accomplishes all of his good pleasure. We, we live in a tumultuous world. And, and we, we hear of dangers and threats. We hear of nations rising up against nations. We hear about wars and the possibility of wars. And one of the great comforts and joys of our heart that should lead forth in praise is despite the nation's ragings, the Lord will accomplish his purpose. In our study of Luke, we saw that, didn't we? Have The, the census... Of Caesar just fulfilled scripture. How how the very act of the people trying to kill him and thwart him put him on the cross, fulfilling his purposes. This is reminiscent of Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds him in utter derision. Our God is sovereign. He's not simply a good chess player who sees the moves of the enemy and outwits him. He brings to nothing the counsels of the nations, and he frustrates their plans. And in contrast, his plans stand firm. Turning your Bible to um, Isaiah chapter 46. This is, of course, one of the great truths and realities that sets the Lord apart from the other would-be gods. When God explains what makes him different than the would-be gods of the Canaanites and the Ammonites and the peoples, this is what he goes to. And we are to delight in, trust in, and worship these realities. Worship him for who he is. I love this in Isaiah 46. This is just a wonderful passage of the grandeur and the power of God. Look at Isaiah 46, starting in verse 5. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith and he makes it a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift up their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. But the point is, this is a powerless thing, this idol, Right? It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from trouble. And here's the contrast. Remember this and stand firm. recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old: for I am God. there is no other. I am God. there is none like me. OK. What makes you unique? Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all. Not most, not some, all of my purpose. What sets the Lord God apart? He declares the end from the beginning. He accomplishes what he sets out to do. He is not thwarted. He is, to use theological term, omnipotent, omnipotent. He has no frustrated plans, ultimately. He has no frustrated desires, ultimately. That is being celebrated here. The Lord, back in Psalm 33, brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. In contrast, the counsels of the Lord stand forever. The plans of his heart to all generations, which then leads in verse 12. Um, His counsel stands forever. To his chosen people are blessed. The blessed state of his chosen people. If this is true, if the nations... Their plans are thwarted. They only do what the Lord intends for them to do. And if his plans are established, then how blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. Now you've got to pause here. Let me say with absolute firmness, this is not America. When the, no, it is not. When the Bible speaks of God's chosen people, there's only one referent to that. When you're speaking of a geopolitical entity, there's only one reference to that. It's Israel. Now, there can be truths that we can learn from that and apply to other things, but this is talking about Israel. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. If you just left it there, then there'd be potential for some other nation to say, well, we've made the Lord our God. The people whom he has chosen is his heritage. It's Israel. Listen to Deuteronomy 7, verse 6 through 8. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than the other people that the Lord set his love upon you and chose you. You are the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. The Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. It's, it's Israel is being spoken to. Now, we are God's chosen people as his sons and daughters, as the church. And so you could extrapolate if God's national people, the people he was working with on earth, primarily in the Old Testament, if they were blessed because he's sovereign and because his purposes are established, we too could say, well, then we too, as his chosen sons and daughters, can also expect to experience blessing and goodness. That's true. Just please don't. Fly an American flag over this verse. It's talking about Israel. It absolutely is talking about Israel. Now, if you are his son and daughter, if he has chosen you in Christ, you are blessed, amen? That's not what this is talking about. We can extrapolate that from this, but please, um, let's leave Scripture in its context. And in the Bible, God's chosen people, his nation, it only ever means one thing. It means Israel. It means national Israel. His chosen people are blessed. His chosen people are blessed. So that's the cause for worship. We are to worship him with the joyful shout because of his trustworthy character, because of his powerful word, and because of his sovereign purposes, which brings us in verses 13 to 19 now to the confidence to worship the Lord. The confidence to worship the Lord. And We're going to move somewhat quickly here. Look at verses 13 to 15, which focuses on divine Omniscience, divine omniscience. Notice the emphasis in the word all here. The Lord looks down from heaven, he sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks down on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. And that emphasis again is making this clear. And, and there's, there's a building of logic. Because of God's character, we know from verses 4 through 5 what he is like and what he loves. What's he like? Upright and faithful. He loves righteousness and justice. Now we learn this God who loves righteousness and justice is keenly aware of everything man is doing. He sees all. He sees all the children of men. From where he sits enthroned, he looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. And maybe you think, okay, he only sees what we're doing, but surely he doesn't know what's inside of me. He doesn't know what's going on in my heart. Friend, he fashioned your heart. Of course he knows what you're thinking. Of course he knows what's going on inwardly, secretly. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds, divine omniscience. We can be confident to worship this God because he knows what's going on. And again, that even ties back into him counseling his establishing of his counsel and plans. He he knows what the nations are thinking. He's fully aware. He's omniscient. He's perfectly aware of man, which brings up a problem for man. If God loves righteousness, if he loves justice, we're not. He knows about it all. The movement now is, in contrast, man's human impotence. The king is not saved by his great army. Now, why is saved brought up? Well, if God knows everything, and if he's this powerful, and he loves what's good, and we're not good, there's some tension implied here. And so we might think, where where do we look to for deliverance? Well, the king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Now, the psalm is looking to the Um, the powerful saviors of David's day. We could add to that, um, 401k will not deliver, health insurance will not save, education will not redeem. These can be all good things. They are not things to put your hope in for salvation. You can make your laundry list of would-be saviors. There's a one-for-one correlation one out of one people die. It's, it's true. And you will stand before the living God. And your strength will not save you. Your might will not save you. Your wealth will not deliver you. Your education, none of that will avail. None of, and yet we, we put so much hope and energy into these things. We live in a country that's convinced if we just educate people enough, problems will go away. Some very educated people built concentration camps during the Holocaust. I mean, that's part of what we learned in World War II is information isn't fundamentally our problem because if you get enough information, we're just as likely to build mechanized death as a utopia. In fact, more so. The problem is inward. We are corrupt. Our our problem is not a lack of information, or a lack of strength or a lack of resources or a lack of finances. It's a lack of righteousness. Thankfully, the psalm doesn't end here. See, God knows all, and all of our attempts to save and deliver ourselves are vain. But there is a Savior. Now we look at loyal deliverance. Behold, the eye of the Lord, this eye that sees all, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death keep them alive in famine. See, there is a deliverance from sin. There is a Savior. It's not you. It's not me. It's not anything you or I can do. It's God. What this psalm is saying is in light of who God is and all he knows and power of his word and his righteous character, you have no hope. I have no hope of appeasing him, being right before him on my own. My only hope is to hope in him. See, this God who is so good Delights in those who fear him, delights in those who hope in his steadfast love. You know, on this side of the cross, we see God's steadfast love most supremely, most clearly seen in sending his son Jesus to die on a cross for us. In David's day, he knows the Lord will send a deliverer, he knows the Lord has a Christ who will come. But how much more clearly, this side of the cross, we see that reality. Hope in that, hope in Jesus. Hope in God's steadfast love revealed there. God delivers those who hope in that. Don't put your hope in your strength. Don't put your hope in your wisdom. Don't put your hope in your ability. Hope in God's saving love. And we now know God's saving love is most perfectly seen in his saving son, Jesus. These are the reasons to hope in God. And praise him, which brings finally to the response all of this the invitation to praise really sets up verses twenty to twenty two which is finally the conclusion to worship where actually the congregation speaks notice all of a sudden we shift to second person pronouns our we our soul waits for the Lord he is Our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in Him because we trust in His holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in You. All this is set up, it's an invitation to worship. And as you can almost picture, as we're gathering to worship, there's think on. God's character and his goodness. Think on the power of his word. Think on how sovereignly he rules the world. Remember that he sees everything and you have no hope of escape or defense or salvation except to hope in him, which then brings the only rational response is then that we apply what has been said. And friend, if if you're here this morning, let this be true of you, that you wait for the Lord, that he is your help. Your heart is glad in him because you trust in his holy name. His steadfast love is your salvation. So what's the right response? We wait for the Lord and for his help. Now the psalm sort of comes back full circle. We hope and rejoice in him. Our heart is glad in him. How does this psalm begin? Shout for joy. If you grasp this reality, if you are one who has hoped in God, Your heart should be joyful and glad in him, in who he is. We've just seen who he is. We've just looked at some of who he is. Don't be bored by that, please. God is not boring. And then verse 22, we rejoice and hope in him, brings the only request of this psalm. There are psalms that are help, 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 deliver, help, help. This psalm has one request. I love it. It's right at the end. Only after worshiping, joyfully shouting, does the sole request of Psalm 33 come here. What is it? Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. This steadfast love that's all around us, it's saying, may it be directly applied to you and to me, to us. To be upon us, to be directed toward us. Listen to Psalm 4, verse 6. There are many who will say, who will show us some good. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. The point is being directed to us. So here, what we are called to pray and ask the Lord to do is this steadfast love of God, this saving love that is seen all around us, seen in so many of his good gifts. O Lord God, if we understand who he is and if we understand his power and his character and his control, his knowledge of us. The only one sane response we can have is to hope in him and to say, Lord God, would you, that steadfast love that's ever, would you direct it at us? Would you place it upon us? You see, in, in, in worship, we get the blessing and God gets the glory. We get the steadfast love upon us. We get his goodness. We get the blessings. We get salvation. He gets the glory and praise. And our hearts should overflow. Praise should not be a burden, a duty, something we endure to get to the good part of the service. Praise is the reason we were made. Heaven will be one unending praise chorus, if you will. I'm going to call the worship team up as we actually take the words of this psalm to heart, as we sing a new song that we learned for the first time this morning, His mercy is more. Please stand.